God has a file on you. All you've ever said or done is recorded there. And when you stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, you'll be judged according to what you've done. Another book will be open to the book of life. If your name isn't found in the book of life, you'll be thrown into the lake of fire. The day I'm talking about is judgment day. It's the last day. Are you ready for that day? The question James asks professing Christians tonight is this. Is your faith true, real, saving faith? And if you're not a Christian, on the last day, what will be God's judgment of you? As we consider this text, James 2, 14-26, we need to think about this text in light of the last day. Before we study this text, let's pray. And let's ask for God's help. Lord, we are in deep need of Your grace and Your kindness to understand Your Word. Would You help us examine ourselves by the Word to sit under its weight. Help us feel the burden of millions of Christians who profess faith but have no works. Oh Lord, we pray that it would not be said of us. In Jesus' name, Amen. The main point of this sermon is, does faith without works save? Does faith without works save? This is James' sole concern in verses 14-26. to It's this question. If you look at verse 14, you'll see it there. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James is asking the question, does faith without works save? And in order to understand the answer that James is going to give, we need to first remember what James taught in chapter 1. If you look back at chapter 1 with me, I last preached on this passage over five months ago, so let's look at a brief recap. Chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, James engages in a battle with passive Christianity. He says there are hearers only. There are those who hear the word, but they don't do it. Then there's hearers and doers. These are people who not only hear the word, but they do it. Now the hearers only, they deceive themselves. They actually think that they're something that they're not. James says their religion is worthless. Now before this section, before verses 22 through 25, there's verse 18. This is a key verse to understand James' whole argument in chapter 2. Verse 18, he says that it's of God's own will that He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. The Christian 
experiences a new birth, a new life, new creation. And who can they thank for that? It's the Word. And the one primarily responsible for this new existence, according to James, is God. He's the one who desired it. He's the one who did it. So first, God makes us new creations. Then, James says, the purpose, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. He makes us new creations so that we bear the fruit of new creation. Hearing the Word is bound together with doing the Word. But both of these flow from God. He's the one who's made us a new creation. In chapter 2, the text we'll be looking at, once again, James engages in a battle against passive Christianity. And as we consider this text, I have two questions I need to ask you. The first one, do you have dead faith? Do you have dead faith? No one thinks they have dead faith, of course. So James is going to give us two examples. Two examples to consider as we ask ourselves that question. The first example is the faith of the phony. Look in verse 15. James gives us a hypothetical situation. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James loves parables. Last time, remember, he gave an example of a rich man and a poor man walking into your church. How do you treat them? Today, he gives us a parable. There's a Christian who's nearly naked. They're habitually hungry. What do you do? We don't have to wonder with James' parable. He gives us the response. The professing Christian doesn't sell their possessions and distribute the proceeds to those in need, as we've been seeing in the book of Acts. The person doesn't say, come and eat. No, this professing Christian says, go in peace. God bless you. Warm yourself. Feed yourself. What good is that? James asks. Does he even need to ask? Everyone knows what the answer is. Do I even need to say it? You could ask the poor Christian. What good is the professing Christian's faith to you? But in asking what good is that, James actually points our attention back to verse 14 to his first question. Failure to provide for the bodily needs of your brothers and sisters calls into question your faith. James is filled with concern for how the church treats the poor, particularly the poor Christians, in this whole letter. In the beginning of chapter 1, remember, he reminds the poor they have riches in Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 1, he tells the church, you want to know what pure religion looks like? It's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction." And at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, the church should not show partiality in favor of the rich at the expense of the poor. James is concerned 
about social justice. If you don't care for poverty-stricken Christians who are in dire need, James says, you're not a Christian. That's the glaring reality of this text. You might think, is James an extremist? Maybe we could find more reasonable voices in the Bible. Here's the Apostle John. By this we know love that Christ laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And of course, we know that Jesus taught this also. In fact, on the great day of judgment, Jesus will sit on His throne and separate true Christians from fake Christians. The primary factor that He'll use in Matthew 25 is actually how they treated other Christians who were in dire need. Don't miss what James and John and Jesus and the Bible are teaching. They're not saying that works of righteousness like caring for the poor are what save you, but they are saying, as we learned back in James 1.18, that God makes you a new creation and you bear the fruit of new creation. That's the evidence that you're a Christian. And so as a church, we have to ask ourselves this very question. Is Covenant Hope Church a place where we cover the naked? Is it a place where we nourish the starving? Do we care for Christians who are in dire need? Or do we offer prayers of blessing instead of physical provision? And as Christians, individually, we need to ask ourselves, are we so thankful that God's adopted us into His family that we will put to death greed by graciously giving our money and our possessions to Christians who are in need? Do you seek out poor Christians? Or do you avoid them? Are you annoyed when they call? Or are you delighted when they ask you for help? And of course, we need to remember, how does God treat those Christians who are in dire need? How does God treat those Christians whose bank account is drained? Their fridge is empty. They're on their last crumb. What does He do? Well, James has already told us in chapter 1. He exalts them. He gives them an eternal inheritance and He provides for their daily needs. And how does He do it? Most often, we've been seeing it in the book of Acts. He, do, he does it through the church, through other Christians. The Gospel changes how we live. And the Gospel changes how we give. Now after providing us this parable, James actually answers his own question in verse 17. Can faith without works save? Look at verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There are actually two types of faith. There's one that's dead. It's, it's like a corpse. 
It's the type of faith that doesn't care for poor Christians. It's a faith that's alone in the sense that it's by itself. There's no works with it. It's dead faith. Is it possible that you actually possess the faith of the phony? Maybe you disagree with James' assessment. You think that actually some people have faith and there's other people who have works. James imagines such a person in verse 18. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James is providing this imaginary debate partner. He's trying to prove his point. The person claims that faith and works are separate. They stand alone. You have faith. I have works. If that's true then, how can James demand that all Christians possess both faith and works? Notice James' response in verse 18. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. You actually can't see faith apart from works. You can only see faith by works. In Matthew 7, Jesus warns the disciples. He says there's false teachers who are out there. They're coming, and here's the thing. They're going to look like sheep on the outside. But on the inside, they're going to be wolves. How can you tell the difference, Jesus says? Look at their fruit. And in verse 19, the example James is going to give is not the faith of false teachers. It's the faith of demons. Even the demons believe that God is one. Their doctrine is orthodox. They have intellectual assent. They they know that God's real. They believe that in their hearts. They even experience an emotional response. James says they shudder. But one day soon, Jesus will toss every demon into the lake of fire forever. So friends, we need to assess. We need to weigh professions of faith. If someone says they believe in the God of the Bible, does that mean that they are a Christian? If someone says they experience an emotional conversion, does that make them a Christian? How would James answer these questions? Where are the works? We need to ditch our shallow understanding of Christianity because according to James, passive Christianity is dead Christianity. Should we take people at their word without any assessment of their works when they profess Christianity. James says, no, we can't do it. Some people say that they have saving faith, but the reality is it's dead faith. This in the Bible is called the doctrine of self-deception. Some people think they're Christians when in fact they aren't. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 25. 
It's the great throne room judgment on the last day. There's actually going to be hordes, hordes of professing Christians that Jesus looks at and He says, depart from Me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil. If you have a friend or family member who says they're a Christian, but they've not been a member of a local church in years, what would James say about them? If you have a friend or family member who says they're a Christian, but they're living in unrepentant sin, what would James say about them? If I went to the doctor because I was feeling sick, and he examined me, and he found out that I had cancer, but he didn't want to hurt my feelings, so he told me, you're fine, you can go. That day when I left the doctor's office, I might be relieved about my condition. But that doctor is not a friend. He's guilty of malpractice. And eventually, his decision would cost me my life. It's not loving our family and friends if we ignore their fruitless, dead faith and instead affirm it. Some of you need to have a step of love today. You need to reach out to a family member or a friend and have a hard conversation this week because they think they're a Christian, but there's no fruit. Friends, I do not want you to be deceived about the state of your soul. You need to ask yourself this question, do you have dead faith? Is it phony? Is it even demonic? And there's a second question we need to ask tonight. Do you have saving faith? Do you have saving faith? James is not only interested in showing us what dead faith is. He also wants to display what saving faith looks like. Look at verse 20. James turns again to his debate partner. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Remember earlier, James said that faith without works is dead. Now he says it's useless. You can say faith apart from works is fruitless. Or faith apart from works doesn't work. James says, do you want more evidence? Here's more evidence. Where does he turn? He turns to the Scriptures. And first, he considers the faith of a patriarch. Now, these next four verses, 21 through 24, are really important for us today. Because 500 years ago, Martin Luther declared to the whole church that justification is by faith alone. And it was actually that belief primarily that got him excommunicated from the church. The church, the Roman Catholic Church, held the Council of Trent to determine what to do and what they actually believed. And it was during their sixth session that they ratified their beliefs on justification by works. The key verse they appealed to was James 2.24. They rebuked Luther. So we have to ask ourselves, is Luther wrong? Is justification really by faith alone? And to find the answer, James says, 
we need to look at the faith of a patriarch. Look at verse 21. James says, Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he sacrificed Isaac? If you remember, this happened in Genesis 22. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son on Mount Moriah. And right away it seems that James is saying that it's not faith that justifies, but it's works. But don't forget, James is not contrasting faith and works. James is contrasting two types of faith. There's dead faith and there's saving faith. That was his original question back in verse 14. And notice when Abraham was justified. James says it was when he stood with his hand raised on Mount Moriah, that's when he was justified. But James continues. Look who was with Abraham on Mount Moriah. Faith. Faith was active along with his works. You see, you can't, you can't separate faith and works. They work together in cooperation. Faith promotes works. James says faith was completed by his works. Faith needs works. In fact, by engaging in works, faith is matured. It's completed. In some sense, works actually realize the essence of faith. James goes on, Scripture was fulfilled. Look at verse 23. What Scripture does James point to that was fulfilled? It's Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now when did this happen? This was decades before Abraham brought Isaac to Mount Moriah. Decades before Abraham's works justified him, he was justified by faith in God's promises. Abraham's faith actually precedes his works. His works are the fruit of his faith. His faith is seen by his works. Abraham was counted righteous by faith in Genesis 15 and was later counted righteous for acting righteously in Genesis 22. James argues that the evidence is clear in verse 24. A person is justified by works, not by faith alone. So what about the Reformation? And what about the Roman Catholic Church? Are we justified by faith alone or by faith and works? You know, the Reformers, Martin Luther especially, he actually agrees with James. And James actually agrees with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The difference, and there is a difference, it doesn't lie in their theology. It lies in their terminology. James is concerned with faith alone. He's talking about a faith that's by itself. A faith that doesn't have any works. Martin Luther actually wrote some of the clearest teaching on James 2.24. He said, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. This is exactly what James is teaching. True saving faith always works. Faith works. 
Works don't save you, but they're the evidence that you've been saved. And if you don't have any works, James would say you don't have saving faith. I love what John Calvin said about this verse. He gave the illustration, just as the heat alone of the sun warms the earth, and yet it is not alone, because the heat is constantly joined with light. God never justifies someone that He doesn't also sanctify. He never gives the gift of faith without the fruit of works. Now some would say that the Apostle Paul disagrees with James. Some people put them against one another. And many of you know the Bible is multiple books written by multiple authors, but it's also one book written by one author, and that's God. So there's no contradictions. Even when it seems like there are, there's none. In Romans 3.28, Paul says, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, Paul's fighting against legalism. He's fighting against the belief that you can trust in your works for your salvation, not in Christ alone. And as we've seen, James says, one is justified by works and not by faith alone. James is fighting against antinomianism, which is a fancy word for saying that you can believe and not do any works or have any works and be saved. Their swords are not drawn against each other. Paul and James stand back to back. But if we look back at Abraham, we see a man who was faithful. His faith was seen in his works, and it was particularly his sacrifice. Do you have saving faith like the patriarch Abraham? James has one more example of saving faith to prove his point. It's not found in another patriarch. It's found in the faith of a prostitute. Look at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Notice all the parallels between Abraham and Rahab. Abraham is called our father. Rahab is called the prostitute. Both, it says, are justified by works. And it even gives the, the when it happened. For Abraham, it was when he offered Isaac. For Rahab, it was when she received messengers. Abraham's faith sacrifices. Rahab's faith risks. If you remember in Joshua 2, Rahab, the prostitute, she heard about the Exodus, that mighty act where God delivered the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. She heard about it, and she actually believed that the God of the Israelites was the true God. And when could you see her faith in action? Her faith was seen when the spies came to conquer the land, and she put them up. She hid them from the king, and she actually helped them escape. And please notice how she is the complete opposite of the person James considers in verse 15. She didn't tell the spies who are in need of a safe place, go in peace. Instead, she risked her own safety 
She risked her own resources for their sake. That's what saving faith looks like. It's faith that takes risks. And Rahab is also an example to us that you don't have to be a patriarch for God to use you. You can even be a prostitute for God's saving grace to be at work in your life. Friends, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scripture, alone for the glory of God alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So if you profess to be a Christian, if you say you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, if you believe that Jesus bore God's wrath in your place and that He rose from the grave, if you say you believe the Gospel, has your life been changed by the Gospel? If you say that you believe in Christ, does your life look like Jesus Christ? And if the answer to these questions is no, can that faith save you? You might think, then I I better start doing good works. I need to change. I need to do more. But remember, God has to be the one that creates new life in you. Works are the fruit of faith. And faith is the gift of God. So let me encourage you, friend. Ask God to give you faith. The faith. Saving faith that works. And for Christians, don't we see in Abraham and Rahab's life that our works must be fueled by our faith? Think of all the reasons that we do good works. You might go to church to please your family. You might read your Bible to impress your friends. You might give sacrificially for the approval of others. Some say that James has little to no gospel in it. But this letter is all about gospel living. And if we remember what Paul says, our good works should be fueled by our faith because whatever does not proceed from faith, Paul says, is sin. So we remember the gospel And that's what transforms our lives. We remember that we were naked and exposed by our sin. Christ clothed us with a robe of righteousness. Sin left us starving, unsatisfied. Christ offered living water. He said, whoever drinks of the water that He gives will never thirst again. Jesus said, this is My body broken for you. Take and eat. God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his only son only for God to then sacrifice his only son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for sinners. Rahab heard of the great deliverance of the Exodus. Friends, there's a greater deliverance. Christ delivers us from the slavery of sin and death. The Gospel fuels how we treat poverty-stricken Christians. We give sacrificially. We give cheerfully because we lack nothing in Jesus Christ. The Gospel fuels how we make sacrifices. 
There's nothing that God's given us in this life. And nothing that we wouldn't give up freely for Him. We trust God's plans. Especially when they make no sense to worldly eyes. And the Gospel fuels how we take risks. We learn to fear God. We learn not to think about what our colleagues or government authorities or anyone else can do to us. We risk our safety and our resources for the advancement of the Gospel among all nations. Our Gospel faith fuels our works. And saving faith always works. Remember that question from verse 14. Can faith without works save? James gives us one final answer in verse 26. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Do you have dead faith? Do you have saving faith? Do you have a faith that works? Friends, the last day is near. Soon we will stand before the Lord and we'll give an account. And for those of us who are in Christ, God will take that file that He has on us. And He'll look at all our sin. And God will say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, give us a faith that works. May it be clear to us and to the world that we are Your children, that we are new creation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.